You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Always appreciate you guys spending some time with us. Want to remind you, make sure you jump on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast so you can hear all the amazing stories that we have to tell you. Also, leave a rating and a review. That helps us out. Get the word of the podcast out there. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites. We are on Facebook at Hazard Ground Podcast. Instagram is the same, Hazard Ground Podcast, and on Twitter at Hazard Ground. Reminder, our website is live, hazardground.com. You can get previous episodes, more pictures, bios, photos of our guests, and a lot of other great additional content that's not necessarily in every episode each week. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers all the freshest ingredients and recipes you need in exactly the right proportions to make simple seasonal home-cooked meals new recipes are created each week by blue aprons culinary team so you'll learn to cook with new ingredients cuisines and cooking techniques meals are between 500 800 calories and start at just eight dollars and 74 cents per serving shipping is always free i'm telling you i've used blue apron many times already their food is delicious every sponsor on the hazard ground is a product that we've used and will stand behind 100 otherwise we wouldn't waste your time talking about it prior to the episode now for a limited time new customers get five meals free with your first two orders that's five meals free with your first two orders so get on over to hazardground.com sponsors and click on the blue apron banner remember support for our sponsors goes right back into the hazard ground making it the best podcast it can possibly be that's hazardground.com sponsors click on the blue apron banner get the discount and discover a better way to cook now on to this week's episode and this week's guest is a former Army Green Beret medic. Uh, he is also a Pat Tillman scholar and on his way from going to a green coat in the military to a white coat as a doctor, it is Carl Holt joining the Hazard Ground Podcast. Carl, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Your story is unreal. Uh, we will get into uh, what happened to you in the horrific helicopter crash that you managed to survive uh, and everything that you're working towards now and becoming a doctor from an army medic to a doctor is, some people think it's the same thing. It's really, there's a, there's a large difference. But special forces medics actually have authorizations to do surgery on the battlefield, which is something that people who aren't doctors don't get to do. I'd like to get into some of that with you, but start sure. by telling us, how did you end up in the military? Well, uh, it's uh, kind of a, a number of reasons and influences, I guess. Uh, I mean, number one, uh, watching those those planes uh yeah. with those buildings on 9-11 i mean that was a uh, i'll never forget it i was sitting in a, a pizza shop actually in in houston texas uh and, and had gone there and you know w- watching the the big screen and and uh, uh just in- incredibly impacting and and then the subsequent feeling of uh feeling pretty pretty useless and vulnerable and um then watching people actually sacrifice and here I was enjoying all the, the comforts and uh, but wasn't really doing much to contribute and so I think that was a, a, a definite big point in the in the in the decision um, I, as well as uh, my grandfather had served World War II and so that was I think probably in a little bit of in my DNA I guess of he had you know sacrificed and uh, his family had immigrated from uh, Europe and seen that war was inevitable and decided to become a pilot and uh, was shot down several times and, you know, had all these 
crazy stories that we could never get him to talk about, but you know, you, you, you grew up hearing about him. And so I guess in the back of my mind was, you know, if, if I was ever needed that, that I would need to do something kind of in, in that tradition. How old were you at the uh, time? Uh, when I went in, I was 29. Okay. So you, you had a, you had a life established already. What were you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had, uh, well, the, I guess to kind of give you a, give you a full picture here, I had uh, gone to seminary straight out of high school. Oh wow! Um, yeah, uh, and uh, after a kind of a turbulent uh, uh, time as a teenager and violence and whatnot, uh, I had uh, kind of gone to the opposite extreme and and uh, become quite religious, and so wanting to uh, kind of make an impact and. Uh, uh, and, and, and I had dabbled in business world as well. It started an MBA at one point. Um, I had traveled extensively, um, as a motivational speaker, as a preacher, uh, and, uh, I had done a lot. Um, and so, uh, it was, uh, but, but I think at the root, I was, I was still really unfulfilled and, and kind of unhappy in the, in the rat race. And uh, all, all of that kind of helped funnel me to make that decision to join. So when you sign up, uh, you, you become a Green Beret, but when you sign up, did you know that's what you wanted to do? Or how did you come across the information? Did you stumble on it? Tell us that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I had, uh, I knew I knew I wanted to do something. And so I, I went to a uh, this Barnes & Noble that was uh, not too far from where I lived in Texas and so I started reading books and uh, I looked into PJs, you know, in, in, in the Air Force. Yep. I looked into SEALs and I looked into the doing some agency work or CIA or something. I, I knew I wanted to do something and and uh, kept coming back to this this whole special forces thing and um, wanting to do something that I felt uh, was meaningful, challenging, adventurous um, and uh uh, you know, the, the aspect of being a green beret. I mean, I studied it and I, I knew, I knew pretty much exactly what I wanted to do. Did but, you know how tough it was? Uh, I, I, I had a concept. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't think anybody really knows how tough it is until they're in that moment and they've gone a few days without sleep and, you know, so when you went to a recruiter to tell him you wanted to be a Green Beret, did they look at you at 29 years old and go, you know, this probably isn't the easiest path you're taking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I had I had a couple that tried to funnel me into into other jobs, and uh, the Air Force flat out turned me down. By the way, really? Um, yeah, I'm just outright. Uh, I, I had uh, I had kids, and and uh, so they they said basically you, you just need to go find something else to do with your life. And, wow, uh, the army was was uh, was all for it. They yeah, we're, we're waiting with open arms, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <We'll, laughs> it doesn't even matter if you can support your family. We'll we'll take you. So uh, you enlist. You raise your right hand. This is how far after nine eleven that it happens. At this point, uh, this is four years. Oh, really? It took that long? Yeah, yeah. So and and kind of the 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 backstory um, was that I ha I had. I went in twice, actually. Uh, I, I went in in 
2004, right at, you know, three years later. Um, it wasn't the right time. There was a lot of family drama. Um, and uh, so with, you know, a month and a half in, um, uh, we, we had some other family issues come up. And so uh, I got out uh, to take care of those things. And then basically right at two years later, came back. Okay. And so the army was, you know, going to work with you and obviously let you go tend to the family stuff. And then, but did you ever, did you have to sign a new contract or it was just kind of like a break in service, yeah. so to speak? Yeah, no, I had to sign a completely new con. They completely let me out. Oh, wow. I had to sign a, a complete new contract. Um, and, and incidentally, uh, I, uh, they wouldn't let me have a, what they called an 18 X-ray contract at that time, which is basically guys going in from off the street going directly into uh uh to to try to be selected as a green beret yeah because so, typically they'll, they'll send you to the infantry or somewhere else first and then you got to go through all the the extra training ranger school and all and whatnot and then special forces assessment and selection and and all right. so you you had a contract initially just to go right to assessment selection and go be a green beret uh but then you right. had to kind of go the circuitous route right so so yeah so the sec so when i went in the second time uh they uh, they wouldn't let me do that, and I, and I understood why. But uh, it wasn't only I think about five, maybe five six weeks into uh, basic training uh, in in there at Benning that uh, I, I got a, a a contract once I was in. So and I, and I knew that I could do it. I I knew what I had to do, but just kind of had to prove myself a little bit. And you know, you're, you're not the only guy who who enlisted at a later stage in their life. I mean, what I mean is basically not an eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old kid. Um, right. you know, or anybody after nine 11, he just said, yeah, I'll go do this. You know, you're 29 years old, you're established. I, we always ask, cause I'm very, very curious. What's it like going through basic training as a grown adult with 18 year old kids? Uh, you know, um, I, I think it's knowing that it's a game and, uh, not, not, uh, thinking too harshly about your colleagues, uh, which at times, you know, you're just at a different point of life, you know? And, uh, I, I mean, shoot, I had probably been in 25 other countries and uh, had had uh, had had a, a career, you know, so so being an enlisted guy and, and pretty much everyone around me is is, uh, you know, 18 to 20. And, uh, you know, you just kind of have to understand, hey, when I was at that age, I wasn't all that mature either and suck it up, play the game and and, uh, you know, go on to the next thing. Well, the next thing for you, uh, once you get in uh, and you go through basic and AIT, where do you go next? And, and what's your path here to get into uh, Special Forces? Yeah, so I uh, went to uh, went, went to jump school there at Benning uh, Airborne School. And from there, we uh, there, there's a, a, a kind of a pre-selection course that, that they put you through about a month long. Um, probably, in, in some ways, more intense than selection was. Um, it, and so, uh, after passing that, and then I went to uh, you know special forces assessment and selection. So there was no ranger school for you in the in the whole deal yet. No, no. Okay. Uh, I went straight straight all the way through, just school after school, um, and then went to selection. And and I had been, I mean, kind of to back up. I I had grown up in Alaska, grown up in the cold. Then I had been in Houston for like 12 years, 13 years, and <laughs> kind of kind of got used to the heat. And uh, I, I think on our PT test day of starting selection, it started snowing. 
and uh, I uh, I wasn't ready for that. I I I had grown really comfortable, <laughs> and uh, so 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 that was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, but at, at past selection, and uh, I'll be honest with you, it was uh, looking back, it was uh, it was a huge risk, um, but from the standpoint of uh, having a having a, a life and having a family and and going in, I don't think I would have ever done well um, outside of of, uh, of of the SF life. I think I was it was just kind of a natural fit. But you know, you don't know if you're going to make it. Yeah. And the the uh, the pucker factor was certainly real. The the risk of of coming in, and if I hadn't made it, uh, I would have been sent to basically needs of the army. Yeah. And who knows where I would have, <laughs> you know, that was a, that was the, the huge risk for it. And, and for those listening who aren't military, even some military members who don't know, you know, just going to assessment selection doesn't mean you get your green beret. That is just the course that they send you to, to get the chance to go get your green beret. So, right. you, you know, you complete the special forces assessment and selection and that is the, okay, you are fit enough to go and try to be a Green Beret, which comes next when once that happens. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so uh, uh, start, started the process um, and, and, and what we call the qualification course or the Q course. Um, and uh, generally it's about a, about a year long if you go straight through, uh, but for medics, it's about two years uh, roughly. Um, and now, so, now, before you go on, I just want to interrupt. I'm sorry, but did you know you yeah. wanted to be a, a special forces medic or you just was it special forces and then they told you you were going to be a medic? Yeah, it, I, I that was exactly what I wanted to do. Okay. Uh, I had yeah, Why? researched, r- read a lot. Um, I, I think that was a actually probably another reason that I went in to begin with, uh, you know, wanting to do something big and, and meaningful, but also wanting to do something medical. Uh, I had had a, a friend. Uh, who was a police officer there in Houston, and he had he'd gotten shot in the stomach, uh, and uh, had uh, by an AK-47, and um, had uh, gone through a, a really really long process of recovery. And I had seen a, a trauma surgeon that saved them, and who happened to be a uh, an army surgeon doing a fellowship there uh, in Houston, and uh, so that's kind of where this whole medical thing started. Um, and I, I just became fascinated with every aspect of medicine and started reading books and asking questions and, and uh, interested in the, in the whole path of his recovery and watching the, the, the competency of the, the doctors and staff. And so when it came time to, um, to kind of transition my life um, and after 9-11, uh, it, it, it kind of just all culminated in this one, this one thing. Uh, of, of being an 18 Delta Greenberry medic. Um, n- not only was the aspect of, you know, contributing, being in the fight, being on the front lines, and, you know, being out there, but also being a healer and kind of learning the art of medicine as well um, uh, appealed to me on a lot of levels. So you get through assessment selection. Take us through the Q course. This is a two-year process. Now, when do you start it? Like, what year are we, and, and where are you in your life and everything else? Oh, wow. So I went to selection in uh, 2006, November time frame. Um, and so it basically went right in, I think, the next month. So this is end of 2006, early 2007. 
All right, so you start the Q course, and the, as you mentioned, the Meta Q course is a heck of a lot tougher. Now, I, I have to ask you, because I, I, I do know one Green Beret who told me this, and I'm not sure if it was a medic or not, but uh-huh. one of the tasks that I heard that they make you do is like they take an animal that's going to be euthanized anyway, and mm-hmm. your job is to keep the animal alive for like 24, 36 hours, whatever it is. So, for example, they'll break its leg, and then they'll shoot right. it, and then they'll cut it and everything else, and you have to keep this animal alive. Is, is, that, is that part of your training? Yes, yes. That's awesome. Yeah, that, 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 that's kind of the, the, the kind of culminating exercise to the, to the medic portion of the course. Yeah. That's I'm, So what animal was it for you? So, uh, it, it was a, a Cape rhino goat, uh, that, that we had, uh, and, and I want to say it was in the neighborhood of 72 to 96 hours, um, that he'd been, he'd been, uh, uh shot. Uh, and so we're, we're having to perform surgery and debridement and you're having to, you know, to, do, to run all your own labs and, you know, culture the, the wounds and make sure you're giving the right antibiotic um, and uh, wound management, you know, wound management and pain management and all these things. Um, and uh, you kind of, kind of get close to your, your little buddy there, you know, and because uh, you, you live with them, you're taking, you're taking care of them, uh, you know, 24, uh, 24 hours a day. And uh, so it's just kind of a, a time of very little sleep where you're, where, you know, everything's on the line. You got to pass, you got to make it. And he's, uh, he's kind of got to pull through for you. I mean, your future de- depends on it. So, and just so we're clear, the culminating exercise, if you fail that you're, you wasted two years, right? Basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good, good job, buddy. Uh, <laughs> come, come, come back another day. You know, <laughs> uh, and that's that's just crazy. I, I know it may sound to the average person who's not military, it may sound a little bit mean and mistreatment of animals. And, you know, forget all that for a minute. Just understand what the premise here is, is that one, you, you know, in combat, a lot of the reason people die, it's not necessarily from the gunshot itself. It's from the inability to stop the bleeding uh, right. in a proper amount of time. That's the number one loss of, of life on the battlefield is failure to stop the bleeding. And so. Uh, right. You know, in the practice, and I'm just trying to give Carl, I'm just going to give some of our non-military listeners the background in the practice of doing this. It's that that's how you save a life on the battlefield, because you don't know when that chopper is going to be able to come and get him out. It might be two hours, it might be 12 hours, it might be 24. But, right. you know, in your line of work, you can't think, well, oh, the chopper will be here. So I'm going to do this for 12 hours. No, you're thinking I'm going to do this until whenever the time dictates. That's right. That's right. Unreal. Yep. So give me some more about, um, you know, going, going through the training as a medic, because it's not just all medical stuff, is it? No. Uh, so yeah, we, we do everything that everybody else does. And, you know, we're, 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 we're just another guy on the team. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the training is kind of designed, uh, you go through, um, a large portion of it before you ever start the medical training. And, um, and obviously this is a, this is an expensive thing to, to operate this whole, this whole, uh, you know, long length of, of training. Um, and, and a number of people wash out people that have passed selections. So there's always, you know, course after course, there's always the, the pressure you, you have to, you have to be your best every day and, and, um, show up ready and prepared and, and, um, keep your, keep your wits about you and, uh, and, and so you kind of get used to the pressure, uh, course after course, and, uh, there's small unit tactics and, uh, of, of course the survival and evasion skills and, and whatnot, uh, those kinds of, uh, skill, skill sets that, uh, they, they instill in you. And, 
and you have to do well. You have to pass every every step of the way uh, long, long before we ever got to medical training. And so you finally get your Green Beret and they put the crossed arrows on you, which is the symbol of, of Special Forces. I mean, it's obviously probably yeah. one of the proudest days of your life. Absolutely. That was a huge, uh, huge thing. And I, I mean, in, 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 even though I was excited to get it, um, it, uh, and, and I knew I had met, met the standards to obtain it. Uh, I, I think, uh, kind of just reminiscing, um, when, when I, when I put it on my head for the first time, I, I was excited. I was glad that it was over, but also didn't really feel adequate. Uh, that I, I felt like it was really just beginning. Wow. Interesting. Is it, I mean, when you say didn't feel adequate, do you mean that you hadn't accomplished anything yet or, you know, what you did was basically the bare minimum, so to speak, or what? Uh, yeah, to an extent, because I hadn't, I hadn't been in combat yet. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is what, December, 2008 or sometime early 2009 when you're all done? Yes. Yes. December okay. 2008. Yeah. How quickly do you get to combat? How quickly do you deploy? Uh, so I deployed uh, seven months later. Okay. Uh, which was which was pretty quick, and and because um, because teams are are uh, you know deploying to all over the world at any given time. I mean, we're not just going to combat regions or or, or known combat regions. Uh, uh, I, I I was kind of worried that I'd go to a team and end up you know three, four years and not even go to Afghanistan or Iraq. And, um, but I, I kind of lucked out. I went to, uh, I went to a, a pretty, pretty badass team from the get go. Um, and, uh, it, that was uh, kind of a, already a hardened congealed group, you know, and, and, uh, right off the bat, I mean, they were getting ready to, to deploy. So the immediately, when I got to the team, they, they were already in training. And so uh, it was, it was uh, week in, week out. We were getting ready to go to war. Okay, so where are you headed and when do you get there? So we got to Afghanistan in, uh, I guess, beginning right, at, right, right around July 4th of 2009. And we were in the western part of the country uh, in Shindan, uh, just a little south of Herat. Um, where we were, we were basing out of, and um, my my team had had been there uh, the previous year, and had uh, seen a lot of a lot of combat and lost lost a, a team member, and um, there there had been already uh, quite a few losses. So um, it, it was uh, it was a very interesting time in kind of uh, the history of the war, and. Um, uh, we, we still uh, were were hoping that maybe we could actually win. I think we we I think we all felt that we were part of something that was big, and we were uh, we were there to make a difference. What was your mission while you were there? You know, obviously without compromising any security details. But what was your mission right. while you were there um, in general? Were you were you hunting after you know just specific bad guys, or were you just trying to clear an area? Give us some more information. Yeah. So. Uh, our our uh, our mission was, of course, to to go after bad guys and what we would call HBTs, high high value targets, and um, we but but not only uh, to to go after those, and we did all over the country um, actually, 
but also to 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 train our counterparts, um, their uh, special forces commandos, uh, to train them in in kind of the all all the aspects of of our craft, so to speak, uh, from intelligence gathering to uh, medical uh, proficiency um, to uh, to actual war fighting, um, so that uh, with with the mission uh, of of leaving behind more uh, more capabilities than when we came, so that they can continue uh, to uh, to to create to have a, a somewhat of a stable government. At least that was the aim or the mission that we had. Right now, how quickly do you see combat, or you see you know live actual fighting when you get there? What was the kind of operational tempo, and what was that like? Yeah, so uh, July it was it was it was pretty quick. I don't know how many days uh, when we got in country. Uh, it, it it was on one hand though, probably. Um, by the time I, I I experienced my first combat and felt my felt the first bullet uh, whiz by, um, it, it it came really hard and fast, and it didn't stop. It was, it was pretty pretty steady. Now, when you think about that moment now, and you talked about getting your Green Beret, but you felt a little bit unfulfilled, did that moment sort of fulfill it for you? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I was there. I was doing what I signed up to do. And from that aspect, it, it did. And, and not only was I there doing what I, I had wanted to do um, and volunteered to do, but uh, I, I also had people under me and, you know, these, these commandos that I was, uh, that I had, you know, formed a relationship with and, and uh, spent time with. And, and so uh, from that aspect, I think that was probably the most fulfilling at that point in the, in the very beginning was, was feeling kind of the weight of what we're doing and not wanting to, uh, not wanting to, uh, to miss that opportunity to make an impact. Yeah, it just uh, let me be frank here and blunt with this. You know, you realize yeah. what you're saying that, you know, watching bullets whiz by your head was fulfilling to you, which is, you know, <laughs> in and of itself, a little bit of a, a, a you know, counterintuitive thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think you have to be a little bit crazy anyway. There you go. To want to do this. Yeah, yeah. It, it's in the DNA. Okay. So, uh, I mean, are you taking casualties at this point? I mean, just what's what else is going on prior to what happened yeah. to you guys? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, we, uh, we, we, we had, um, been in, uh, kind of a, a, just a constant, constant, uh, action tempo. Uh, every couple days we were, we were doing something, uh, some, some kind of big operation. And of course, you know, there, there was a, the, the IED situation, um, you know, we were doing a lot of, a lot of ops where, uh, we may go in under cover of darkness and, and be there 24 hours and, um, take, you know, large swaths of, 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 uh, of, of land. And then, and then, uh, you know, get in there and then Marines would take our spot to, to hold that ground. Um, and, uh, so we, we had, it had been pretty constant. Um, and, uh, it, I had, uh, we, we kind of saw it all, um, from, from, uh, you know, uh, individuals who were uh, uh, badly burned, um, and uh, uh, to uh, to you know being shot, etc. When your training kicks in for the first time, and all that you know hard work that you did for two years to get there, 
Is there a sense of fulfillment in that? Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think that's the right word to say. Um, it, at that time, you know, when, when that happens, and I should probably attest to this as well, um, it, it's, it's the muscle memory you put in uh, long before you ever, you ever there in that situation. And it kind of takes, kicks in and, and you, you, you do whatever you were, you were doing back in, back in the States, you know, during training. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it, it felt good. I think there's also the, the aspect of you're, you're in such a, a small group of people that you know each other really well by this point. And you have the constant, um, I, I might even say a fear of letting each other down. Right. Uh, it, it's, uh, you, you, you show up every day and you've got to give it your best. Um, uh, and, and so I, I think there was, there was always that lingering, lingering fear of, you know, this, the, the, that green hat meant something because somebody, somebody paid a high price to, to create that reputation. Right. And, uh, I, I wanted to make sure I, I, I lived up to it and shoot, maybe even, uh, uh, ho- hopefully continue the tradition. Prior to uh, your your helicopter crash that you were in, did you have to work on one of your guys on your team? And the only reason I asked that is because you talk sure. about that tight-knit bond that you guys have. Is it harder to work on somebody you know so personally? Uh, well, yeah. So kind of to, to back up, every every casualty I'd seen at that point had uh, had either been other other services, Marines, uh, other Army uh, you know, counterparts that we had worked with, um, other agencies. And, and so up to that, uh, that helicopter crash, I had not had any of my own brothers that had been wounded. So the helicopter crash was the very first time that, uh, all right, well, let's, let's talk about that night in October, 2009. Uh, when you wake up that day, what's the mission? Do you know about it? I mean, what's going on? Give me kind of walk me through the sequence of events. Yeah, so we had been actually working on this for for a while. Um, that, to our knowledge, uh, no one had ever, uh, no other units had ever hit this uh, this this area um, really close to Turkmenistan. Uh, actually, just a few uh, clicks, just a few kilometers away from the border of Turkmenistan, and so um, uh, it, it was kind of a an area where um, drugs and and uh, IEDs, et cetera, munitions and weapons were were coming across the border um, from other other places, and uh, so it was it was a bazaar of sorts. I think um, I want to say somewhere around 300 uh, little shops uh, that were were selling and trading all of these uh, these weapons, and, and of course drugs are our main currency there, and so um, the uh, uh, DEA was working with us, and uh, we we went in to to kind of put a stop uh, to this uh, to this big big operation. And so uh, we had known about it. We've been we've been planning and preparing for it. And and um, I, I don't. We we usually rotated, um, you know, as far as who was doing the planning and preparation and briefing everybody about the about the mission. And I don't remember who was, who was doing it at that time, but, but I remember it had been 
for quite a few days. We knew that this was probably going to be be a big one. Um, and and so we were actually supposed to go the night before. Uh, and we had had some uh, some issues with our aircraft. And so we got pushed 24 hours. Uh, and so I'll, I'll never forget uh, one of the guys that I had done a lot of medical training with. He was uh, working with a aviation unit that was uh, that was flying us. Um, and uh, I hadn't seen him for a while by this time. And so we got to, to talk for a couple hours and, um, you know, great guy, great medic. And, and um, you know, he was, he was unfortunately one of those that, that died the next day and, and uh, had no idea that would be our last conversation. But uh, so that was kind of the, the run up to this. We knew it was gonna be a, a big thing. And um, the, night, uh, the night we went in, um, we uh, had more aircraft issues and we were supposed to go in with three helicopters and we had to push that down to two. Um, and so we, we weren't able to take as many uh, as we wanted to. And so I think there was only uh, in the total number, I think there was only five from our team that went with uh, some Marines and then some uh, Afghan. So when the helicopter first takes off, or the two helicopters and the one that you're in, I mean, is everything routine? Is it normal to this point? It was. It was. Uh, I mean, as, as routine as war can be. Right. Uh, you, you know, you you kind of know the only thing that's not going to happen is the plan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. So you know, we. I mean, we. Well, we knew it. We we all knew it. And uh, I uh, just just when we got there, and, and when when I say. Uh, Getting there, I mean, we had a couple hour flight. Um, oh, wow. We were we were going a long way away, uh, and so a couple hours flight in the mountains, uh, and and it's not just uh, you know taking off in a nice 747. Uh, it was uh, it, it was hovering the you know I think we're I think we were usually flying somewhere between 17 and 25 feet off the ground. You know, ridiculous, and and then just hugging these mountains up and down these uh, mountain ranges all the way there. Uh, and so I, I remember, you know, uh, you know, hearing in my, in my, my headphones that, you know, we were certain distance, certain amount of time away and trying to move my legs again because they'd fallen asleep. Wow. And, uh, was this at night or during to, the day? At night. Okay. At night. I, I don't think we ever did anything during the day at that right. time. Um, so it was, I would say, I'm just trying to remember. It was somewhere around the probably 11 o'clock time frame. Um, and so uh, I, I remember I, I had a, a little compass right there by my by my watch. And uh, I remember looking down at my watch and and uh, making sure I knew exactly, you know, which way it was north. And remember, OK, I need to go to the left. And and uh, we were kind of going up in, in, in all kind of directions. And we, we had our layout of what the what the village would look like but of course we've never been there and uh just when we got in uh when we crested those mountains they had uh, a couple uh uh a discus you know which are you know anti-aircraft uh they, they were expecting to get hit at some point um and so uh just on just on infill we knew we were we were we were in a fight and and possibly the fight of our lives so do you feel the helicopter get hit with, with 
you know, anti-aircraft fire and everything else? I mean, what happens if the helicopter finally crashes? So we, so that actually happened when we were leaving. Oh, okay. So we, we actually got, got settled in, um, once the initial, uh, initial contact was made, um, we, we went to our, our, our kind of our entry points there in the little village and, and, um, it probably took about 45 minutes for the moon dust to settle. It was extremely thick. Uh, in fact, we were, you know, having to clear rooms with maybe, maybe a foot and a half visibility. It was horrible. Oh, wow. Um, and just hoping that everybody was doing what they're supposed to do. And you didn't, you didn't, uh, come across one of, uh, one of your own or an Afghan that you might have problems communicating with. I mean, um, that there was there, a lot could have gone wrong in that scenario. Um, but our, our aircraft actually left. And, uh, I mean, I think the closest people to us was probably a good hour, hour and a half, uh, away at that point. So. We, we got in and, and actually it was a very successful night. Um, and uh, uh, I, I was on a, um, a a position just south of this this big bazaar and um, there was uh, uh, after the initial contact and you know clearing one uh, one shop after another and uh, it was millions and millions of dollars worth of drugs that were found and and uh, I forget the exact count of IEDs that we found, and uh, it, it was a it was a huge cash uh, that we that we 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 got, and and things were going well, um, and they started uh, burning a lot of this. Um, obviously, we weren't going to take it all with us, uh, so they started, you know, detonating some of these IEDs, and and uh, the uh, the smoke started filling this valley. We're pretty pretty high up, and uh, the smoke started filling this valley. And uh, I, I had uh, about uh, maybe three or four Afghans that were with me in this one position on this uh, the top of this compound. And uh, I uh, probably had about two minutes. We they they counterattacked, and we probably had about two minutes where I knew something was happening. I couldn't see. Exactly, and we had uh, infrared lights on our helmets there, and um, so in, in retrospect, I think they probably had some kind of night vision capability to uh, kind of know where we were. But uh, it uh, the the, the counterattack got started with a an, an RPG uh, that that knocked me down. Didn't hit me, obviously. Thank God, I'm still here. But uh, it's kind of how things got started that night, um, and. Uh, uh, we were we were in quite a fight for a while, and uh, I think with uh, the air, aircraft was telling us there was some about 400 Taliban that were kind of amassing on our position. So oh wow, we uh, we had to get out of there. Um, so uh, even uh, even in the middle of the fight, I mean, um, just to give you kind of a a little uh, I, I guess uh, understanding of the scenario. Uh, they were they were dropping uh, uh, um, boarding mic mic on sniper positions that had gotten set up and and uh, we were we were under attack we had to get out of there so the when when our helicopters came in to get us I mean they were they were coming into a to a pretty hot 
hot place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but the moon dust began and the smoke that filled this valley was such that we, we couldn't even see our helicopters land. We just hear and feel the heat. And, um, I'll never forget, uh, grabbing onto the person in front of me and somebody was behind me and we, we held on and we ran, um, and finally made it up the ramp and got in. And, uh, as the, uh, last guy was coming in who happened to be our chief there on the team, uh, with the thumbs up, we were already in the air. He was still on the ramp. We were trying to get out of there. So, um, it, it was, uh, <clears throat> we were kind of all shocked that we were getting out of there. I did not expect to, to, to live, uh, survive even the fight that we'd been in that night. So, um, we're pretty relieved, but, but also, uh, we, we knew we weren't out of there yet. And so the, the, the first helicopter had taken off, uh, ahead of us and to kind of give your listeners a little, uh, understanding. These are, these are the, the big helicopters, the mountain ones that, that have two, uh, two rotors on them. Uh, CH-47s. Yeah, the Chinooks. And, uh, yeah, Chinooks. So uh, those, those things are huge. And uh, we we packed it in, and uh, even running in the in the helicopter, uh, it had already, people were, you know, getting seats along the, the, the sides of it, and I just ran up to the front and and uh, sat down on the ground there between the, the two minigunners, and, and uh, we were probably... Oh, somewhere. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. Time kind of slowed down. Uh, uh, where we uh, we got up probably about seven, eight hundred feet, and we're trying to to clear the mountains, and uh, then then uh, in the process of evading fire, and uh, in in the process of trying to clear the mountains at, at the the last second. Uh, the pilots realized they were flying us into the into the mountain. Wow! Uh, just in the in the confusion of war, and uh, so they they pulled up, uh, and and uh, as as the helicopter came up, almost full tilt, and we actually have video of it um, uh, because of uh, other aircraft that were filming as just a normal part of of uh, combat. Um, it, it, it lost power. So we fell back down into the village. And I mean, to, to, I mean, those pilots were incredible because, uh, they, uh, those of us that lived, they saved us. Uh, they, even though the helicopter fell back into this village on its side, uh, the last possible second, they, they got it straightened out. And, uh, we, we crashed through a, a two-story compound that fell back on top of us. Um, and, uh, it, and it broke the, broke the helicopter in, in half, but the, the back end was, uh, pretty much everyone lived in the back. So, uh, I was there in front and, uh, um, I remember feeling, feeling us falling. And I remember thinking, this is it, you know, this is, uh, we're done. Um, my, uh, this is how I'm going out. Uh, and, and I remember that thought, it seems like we fell forever. And in the, somewhere in the line, uh, you know, I, I had 
and because I had ran up to the front, just sat on the ground, I had nothing to grab onto uh, when we when we we tilted up and lost power. So uh, I, I kind of went tumbling all over, uh, kind of like a little ping pong ball. And and uh, uh, so I lost consciousness. And I remember waking up and realizing that we were no longer falling and then realizing that there was teeth in my mouth and then realizing that that I couldn't breathe. And um, by then the, uh, the, the, it, the, the helicopter was, was on fire. So I, I, I remember trying to pull stuff off of me and realizing that it wasn't equipment, it, there was body parts. Um, it was just uh, wow. a horrible, a horrible uh, scene that uh, that I've, you know, have have uh, dealt with since. And and um, uh, I, taking that first uh, breath of air, spitting out my teeth, and I tried to stand up and 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 fell like a sack of potatoes back to the ground. Uh, and, and I realized that I was broke. I was I was pretty broke up. And uh, I, I remember, of course, seeing, seeing the kind of the chaos of the situation in the light of the fire. And, and uh, there, was, there was distant uh, screams of people to, to get out. You know, if there's anyone left, right. get out, get out. And uh, so I started kind of uh, crawling, crawling toward those, those voices. And uh, in the process, um, and, and, and I'm somewhat leery to even talk about this uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of uh, th- those, those that may be, may be related to the deceased that would hear, but um, I, I, think it's, I think it's important to tell from the aspect of, of other service members who have experienced far worse than that uh, and, and have not um, perhaps dealt with those things adequately. Uh, I, uh, I remember crawling past, um, body parts and, 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 and I, re- I remember one in particular that I, uh, just the torso that I shook, um, and there, there was so much, you know, people were just buried, uh, and I remember shaking that that body. Uh, never saw who it was, but shaking that body, and then realizing that the heat was so intense, and and they were they were yelling to get out, and I kept crawling. And uh, I'll never probably completely forgive myself for you know you know you you play the what ifs and the scenarios of. Well, maybe if I had if I had stayed there for a few more seconds, maybe I could have gotten gotten them awake, or you know, if uh, you know, tried to tried to save them. And and uh, you know, you, you think about all the training you went to went through to perform in these scenarios, and um, and and then perhaps letting letting your teammates down or letting you know other service members down. Uh, um, it, it can be something that in the aftermath and the years to come uh, in, in recovery that can paralyze you. Um, 
uh, where you don't know if you'll you'll ever be able to perform um, again because uh, because maybe you let them down. Uh, and so it's, it's been a and, and I'll talk about the, the aftermath all that maybe in a second. But um, I, I remember crawling out and and uh, uh, just at the, the you know trying to trying to make it out the last few feet. My uh, my my warrant my chief. Uh, Chief Valdez, Jeremy Valdez, was the only other uh, other uh, uh, SF guy that that survived. Um, he he put his neck on the line, and uh, there was literally thousands, somewhere around ten thousand rounds from those miniguns that were cooking off and and uh, just going everywhere. Uh, and and he he put his he put his neck on the line and and, and pulled me out the last. Uh, the last few feet and and got me safe so that's how i made it out initially <sighs> okay um just uh, incredible and there's so much there but recognize you know the one thing i'm thinking is when you finally get out of this helicopter uh, you're still in the bottom of an afghan valley with people who want to kill you right right so how right. do you end up getting out of there yeah so the, we 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 uh pretty much everything was destroyed um most everything my equipment were was pretty much that pulled from my body my my weapons were were gone just gone and and you know they had been pretty pretty well secured to me um my body armor was still on and i had a knife that was all i had left um and uh my my helmet was gone and and just like likewise everyone else i mean i had one guy who had a had an m4 wrapped around his chest uh, our most of our weapons were were gone and so we um my my chief you know, took over, um, and uh, we we had a large number of casualties, obviously, um, and uh, I, I think, in, in thinking back, I think we only had about five or six who could could actively even walk around, right? Um, and uh, so, um, trying to kind of realizing, hey, we're in the middle of nowhere, and uh, we really don't have anything to protect ourselves. Uh, we were thinking about all the avenues of approach and making sure that that uh, we had uh, visual and we finally made uh, radio contact and, and that the other helicopter that had gone on in front of us, uh, the we, uh, Inspector Gunship above had, had radioed them and told them that, you know, hey, your guys just went down. And so they circled back and um, parked, you know, in, basically in the desert quite a distance away. Uh, and and basically powered down, and we we kind of relied on on Spectre gunship. We had a couple A10s that were there to uh, kind of keep keep the enemy away for us long enough to uh, to try to get out of there. Do you know the extent of your own personal injuries at this point? Uh, at this point, no. I, I knew I was broke. I knew I couldn't walk. Um, I did not really grasp how bad it was. Um, and and I think the adrenaline of it. I was the at this point, I had ten patients, and I was the only medic, and I didn't have an aid bag, uh, and uh, people were were actively dying, um, and uh, so uh, I, I had a guy with uh, broken hips uh, that was uh, you know starting to swell. I mean he's obviously bleeding internally, and and uh, there was a there was a lot of and, and then there was quite a few Afghans that, that, you know, 
uh, we had a language barrier at that point and I didn't have an interpreter. And so trying to, uh, we, we got everyone kind of in, in the, in the same little room, uh, all the, those that were, that were too beat up to, uh, to mount any kind of, uh, resistance. And, um, I, I started crawling around, uh, person to person and assessing who was the worst off and kind of triaging. Um, and I knew it was painful to, to crawl. I didn't really know why. And all, all that mattered really was that I was the only, only medic there and they needed me. And, uh, so, um, we, uh, you know, stopped bleeding and tried to get a few, a few guys splintered up, you know, just, you know, uh, sticks and rags basically. Um, right. and, uh, uh, and, and then at that point there was, a there was actually a, uh, uh, Marine special operations, part of my Marsoc guy that, uh, that I had known for a while. And, and, uh, they finally cleared their way back to us. And whenever he, he popped his head in this little, this little, uh, cubby hole, really all that was. And, and, uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, with, uh, several, expletives uh, associated with it. He said uh, that uh, I, I didn't look too well. And uh, somewhere along the line of uh, I was I was I was an ugly mofo. And uh, that's kind of how we we kind of handed off. And I said, Hey, this is the deal this guy this guy this is what's happening and um, uh, kind of gave him a little sit rep of, of sorts and told him who was the worst off and what I had done guys that I've given morphine to and, you know, uh, cause it, it, you know, we, we had a little, every guy there had a, a, a medical pouch and, you know, in his, in his, uh, uh, you know, cargo pants. And so, uh, uh, and, and I, I still had consciousness through this time, but it was starting to kind of fade once I knew that, Hey, it wasn't, it wasn't all my responsibility. Now. Right. I, I think, uh, they, and, and then the movement to the helicopter uh, that that they had powered off because they didn't have gas enough gas to get us anywhere. We were so remote. Um, they had powered off in the desert, and and uh, so we had to move somewhere around seven or eight hundred meters uh, over over walls. Uh, so you know, uh, you know, they they ripped doors off uh, to try to use as stretchers, and uh, they would like. For, for, for me, for example, they would, you'd have two guys that, that lifted you up and over the, over a wall and basically dropped you in somebody else's arms. And hopefully they, they would catch you, you know, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So basically that was the, that was a movement to get into the helicopter. And once that happened, I don't remember all that much until I woke up in the hospital. When you wake up in the hospital, you were in a hospital in Afghanistan or are you already in Germany? I was in I was in Herat when I woke up first. Okay. Um, and they uh, they were just they were kind of figuring out all that was wrong. And uh, the next thing I remember was I had already had a they had already they had flown me to to uh, Bagram. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, the next thing I knew, I basically had already had a couple surgeries, and they were packaging me up to to go to. Uh, I woke up when when one of our commanders came in to uh, to give me a coin or a medal or something, and uh, I I think I might have nodded at him and went back to sleep. 
So when you finally speak to a doctor, what are the extent of your injuries? Uh, so I had, uh, I, I had multiple facial fractures uh, and had, had lost a portion of my maxilla, my top jaw, and uh, had, had uh, uh, lost a number of teeth, ended up being six teeth uh, right there in front in the top that I lost, and as well as the jaw with it and had a brain injury and had dislocated both my shoulders, had um, a broken back, um, had uh, um, uh, what uh, basically both my ankles I had severely torn and then my left leg I had broken in a number of places and uh, uh, had had a couple of the tendons and ligaments I had, I had uh, completely completely severed. How quickly do you get to Germany? Uh, I think we're at somewhere around 24 hours, 36 hours. Okay. So they didn't have to do like any emergency surgeries on you in Afghanistan? Uh, not necessarily, but I don't really remember. True. <laughs> uh, they'd already had, I think two, two major surgeries by the time I really kind of became aware. And, uh, I, I think the first fully conscious time I had, uh, we were, we were somewhere a few hours away from touching down at Germany. Who was there to explain to you what happened and all fill in all the details that you didn't know? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, there was, uh, wow. There was, a psychologist and psychiatrist. And then there were, you know, of course, surgeons and oral surgeons and, and, um, uh, orthopedic surgeons. And I don't even remember, there was a bunch and, and, and at the time, you know, this is uh, fall of 2009, and so um, uh, I guess there was a there was quite a bit of buzz. Uh, I, I think that was the first time that it even came out publicly that the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency was even there in Afghanistan, um, and uh, so there was quite a bit of buzz uh, at that time. And so, uh, for whatever reason, and I, obviously I don't remember, but uh, there was enough buzz that they they completely cleared a wing of the hospital there, Launchstool. And um, the security guards and everything for this wing is kind of surreal. Wow. Um, uh, while uh, during our during our stay there, which was, I don't know, somewhere around a week and a half or something like that. And then how quickly do you get back to the States? Uh, I, I, think, I think it was right about a, 10 days or so after the... So it really wasn't that bad. I mean, some people stay... Uh, quite a uh, length of time there in Germany, but uh, uh, they got us back pretty pretty quickly, I think, somewhere around 10 days. And that's when, you know, I, I was, uh, and, and they ended up getting me all the way to, to, to brag where my family was. Are you relieved that you're back in the States or what's your feeling and your thoughts at this point? I think relief is a good word. Yeah. Um, I I didn't know how many had died and I didn't know who until um, probably about uh, about five days after, I think. It didn't register. Um, and what was and, that like when you find that stuff out? Yeah, that was... Um, I, I, I don't really have the words to say. Um, of course, at this point, we had... We had We'd gotten kind of tight, um, and and then there was also the 
those that I didn't really know, um, the, the, the pilots and whatnot. And um, so it, it was, it, I think it really took probably weeks for it really to dawn on me that they were gone. Um, and uh, so, I, but I was, I definitely remember being relieved that, that I'd made it. And uh, it, it really wasn't until a, a couple months afterwards that the, all the other, you know, issues and the trauma in my mind really started. Let's, and the let, guilt. Yeah, let's, let's stay there for a minute. So kind of, you know, the physical wounds eventually start to heal and, uh, you know, you, you, you get cosmetically back to normal, but inside there's a whole different war that's waging. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it, it, those invisible things. And I think uh, even though, I think initially they told me it would take about two years to get me back uh, physically back together. Um, and it ended up, of course, being a lot longer than that. Um, and, and at first I was uh, extremely determined uh, to get back to my guys, to get back to my team. And and um, I felt like um, that's, that's just what I had to do. I had to get back. I had to get better. And, and, um, and so, you know, of course, eventually learning how to walk again and, and in physical therapy for months and months and months. And, and, uh, um, it occupied me, uh, and, and really it wasn't until about 10 months afterwards. So we're now at this time we're, I mean, we're talking about maybe first of September, uh, uh, mid-September uh, where the the more psychological trauma started settling in. Um, in, in the meantime, uh, I, I had been in, you know, I'd been married for 14 years at that time and uh, had, uh, uh, had gotten separated um, and, and had, you know, a lot of changes in life However, it really took about 10 months, even though the helicopter had been crashed for a long time. It took me about that long where I stopped falling, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, how do you work through all this? I mean, you know, at what point in time do you, you get to a spot where you feel like, okay, I, I, I've got this under control? Uh, well, it took years. Um, honestly. And it took some scary moments. Uh, it, it took, um, I, I think I'm very thankful that, that I, that I had some people that, um, that, that kind of took me under their wing and checked on me. And, and, and it was kind of a, a different time as well, because our, our unit was moving to Florida. Um, so there was a lot of moving pieces. Uh, the, the, my, the team the team came back and I think might've been there for a few months and they were getting ready for the next trip, you know? So, um, and of course I couldn't make it on that trip. And so I was kind of a, kind of out there and kind of alone, uh, in this, uh, you know, newly single after all these years and trying to still wrap my head around how I was going to be a good dad. And, um, of course, initially trying to fight back to get back to my team, 
and uh, and and then it, it just it was it was one thing after another that kept uh, happening, and so uh, and and to kind of uh, for 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 time's sake to keep it in the in, in a concise package, there was a number of times that I called the crisis line. Um, one, I think the first time I was on a highway uh, headed back from DC. And uh, that's probably when the, the really visceral flashback started, uh, feeling the heat and, um, and feeling like a, that maybe I could have saved somebody, but didn't, and I saved myself. And then the feelings of, you know, my, you know, it, it had been better that I came back in a body bag than to come back to divorce and you know all of these better for my kids and 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 feeling uh that i i really didn't have anything more to give or offer or or there was anything for me to do in life um and uh so you know the the first time i called the helpline crisis line um i i, I was probably at one of the closest points I was to, to ending it. And um, uh, I, I think it was at that point that I, I determined that one way or another, I, I had all these, all these broken pieces, but that I had two kids that really needed me. Mm -hmm. And whatever I had to do, at this point, I, I may have let, let other people down, but I couldn't let them down. And um, that pushed me. Uh, and, and in the, it, it was a very extensive journey. Still not actually probably quite over, but um, there were times where I felt better and I was in counseling and felt better. And, and then, uh, um, you know, something would happen and I would, I OD'd on, on psych meds for a while they had me on every and of course they were just throwing oxycontin at me i i think i had three or four different narcotics for a while going and wow and uh just uh just kind of surviving and and um I, I remember at one point i had uh uh we had been in uh i had been in counseling and thought i was good you know i was kind of trying to move on and they had uh by by this time, uh, they had put me in a training billet, so I was I was training training new medics, you know, and which was in and of itself I, I felt excited to do, and you know I was giving back to the force, and I had something to give, you know, I had all these experiences, and um, but uh, I had a a road rage road rage incident, and um, I in the middle of the night in the highway, a guy just ticked me off and, and, you know, it was, it was a trigger for me that I didn't even know, exi know existed. And, um, I, uh, I was determined I was going to kill him. And all this, this rage that I thought I had dealt with. And, um, and, and so I'm, and through all this, I, I've become such a big advocate for, for, getting yourself right in the head, you know, as, as a veteran, um, uh, there, there's so many guys out there and, 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 and women who've gone through these horrific, um, scenarios. And unfortunately, a lot of times we deal with it by 
getting back out there and and never never really processing some of these things and and adequately dealing with them and 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 um, as as courageous as we can be to uh, to face to face you know you know enemy fire and and uh, bullets and, and explosions uh, you have to be courageous enough to deal with yourself yeah and uh, I I think a lot of uh, a lot of veterans perhaps don't see it that way and and think that they have to be tough and really I think the uh, um, I, I think the most courageous and and tough people among us are those that that decide to they're going to deal with themselves and if it takes six years of counseling so be it they're going to go through the process and and when it when it gets to that point i think you're then ready to actually contribute something meaningful i mean it's perfectly said you know the the words are powerful and and we talk about it a lot on the podcast. You know, if you know anybody, a veteran or anybody who's in trouble or thinking about hurting themselves or somebody else, you know, don't hesitate, intervene, get involved and, and take them yes. to a professional and, and get them yes. the help they need because, you know, we're at 22 a day right now on average and that's 22 too many. Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's it's a problem that we all have to combat and fix. Now, clearly you have moved past it. I, I would never say you're over it. I mean, obviously there are certain things that you're never going to let go. And it's just the nature of combat. Right. If, if you do it, there are certain things that you'll never let go of. But right. that all said, uh, you got yourself back to a, you know, contributing member of society, so to speak. And, you know, you're working towards, uh, you know, your medical degree, but you're also a Tillman scholar. Uh, you're one of, of, of several Tillman scholars we've had on the podcast. What yeah. was getting that phone call like? Well, that was uh, that was uh, pr- pretty surreal, uh, pretty shocking, actually. Uh, you know, it's a very long, arduous process. You know, of uh, of uh, interviews and essays and background checks and um, you know, and and so with every kind of with every uh, gate that I got past, it was, uh, you know, I told my my wife, I I, I can't believe it. You know, they they put me on to the next to the next round. Um, and, uh, when I finally got that call and, uh, it, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I had been very familiar with, um, Pat Tillman's story and, and, uh, you know, and, and the aftermath of it and, um, to, to think of, uh, of Marie and the others that, you know, the, his closest friends that created this foundation that's doing so many amazing things. Um, I, I think, I, I think knowing all that, I, I, I don't think I would have done what they, what they've done. Uh, I think I would have been, been done with the military, um, with all the political shenanigans that took place after that. And, and so to be a part and given an opportunity to be a part of this, this community, this, uh, um, full of, of, uh, of really stellar people, uh, was, was rather shocking. And when we went to the summit, uh, just, uh, well, three or four months ago, uh, and, and got to rub shoulders with, you know, some of the most amazing people, uh, that are, that are doing incredible things. You know, you, you, you have to pinch yourself and think, you know, who 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 messed up and let me in? You know, there there 
something just can't be right, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, so it, it was, uh, an immense, immense honor and, but, uh, we were chosen. And so we're, uh, we're moving forward and, and hopefully, uh, uh, going to be able to make a, make an impact because of it. Well, congratulations. Certainly is well-deserved. Let me ask you about one more thing. Uh, yeah. You had your accident in October of 2009. In right. 2010, you ran in the Marine Corps Marathon. I uh, did. That is rather <laughs> impressive given the long list of injuries that you had and what you had to do with. Uh, and, and, you know, what was that like for you being able to do that on your own? And, and moreover, you know, how therapeutic was it for you? Ah, wow. It, it was, uh, it was very therapeutic. You know, I was trying to raise some money for, for families, et cetera. And, uh, but I really in the, in the, I think it was something that I, I was doing to try to prove to myself that, that I was still functional. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, I paid a, I paid a price for that. It, it, uh, I, I even more severely hurt my leg that, that, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of permanently damaged it. So, uh, perhaps, uh, in hindsight, <laughs> it wasn't the <laughs> smartest thing I've ever done. Uh, but, uh, you know, Hey, it gave me a goal and, and, and I think that's huge. I mean, no matter where someone is in the, in the process of recovery, you've got to have a goal and a purpose and just latch onto it and do your best to fulfill it, you know? And so you were on your way to uh, getting that white coat. Uh, you've completed medical school, right? And, and how, where are you in this process and what's left for you? Yeah. So I, uh, I, I have, I have right at about two years left uh, before I actually uh, have an MD behind my name. And I'm uh, in, in the, uh, then, then after that, of course, is residency and, uh, it's definitely still a long road. I'm, I'm looking at, uh, doing general surgery and, and trauma critical care fellowship after that. And so I've, uh, I've got a probably about nine more years <laughs> of, uh, of, uh, surgical training left. So it's, it's definitely a long road, but, um, I, uh, I'm extremely grateful that I have this opportunity, um, I, I, I have all my limbs and, uh, some would say I'm not in my right mind, but, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely grateful, uh, to, uh, to have this opportunity. And, and, and really, I, I mean, I think anybody that's been through any kind of traumatic situation and, and survived, uh, I think it is, uh, a gift if you can see it as such, um, a, a gift, uh, a reset button that many Many people don't get to to create kind of a new life, and that's what I've been afforded, you know, an opportunity to do. And and it, it energizes you to not lose a day uh, because you know how how quick life is extinguished, and um, you, you kind of have to make make the most of what you're given. And hopefully, I can help uh, a lot of. Uh, a lot of traumatic patients in the future find uh, find that resetting button. Well, your story is just incredible, and you know the tale of survival, given the fact that you know you fell 800 feet out of the sky, and I know the pain of losing some of your brothers is still with you every day, and so I thank you for sharing all that with us. And 
you know, uh, it's a it's a huge honor to be a Pat Tillman Scholar, and I, I know you're representing them all well. But uh, becoming a doctor and, and leading a life of service that way for the for the rest of your life also kind of is in line with uh, everything that you've chosen to do from the time you you rose your right hand and decided you were going to be a Green Beret in the Army. So, Carl Holt, yes, we thank you so so much for everything. Uh, continued success and, and get healthy and get well, man, so you can at least maybe yeah. uh, you know walk a marathon somewhere down the road again. <laughs> you know, a little Absolutely. less damage to your body, but. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been an absolute honor, and, and thank you for your service to our country and so much for sharing your story. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate that. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.